I want to introduce the next speaker to you. It's me. <laughs> I was thinking of a way to not make it awkward from the time I went from here to here, but sometimes you just got to embrace the awkward, you know what I'm saying? It's what I do. Um, all right. So I um, did a, I researched some, a study that the Barna Institute, the Barna Research Group did, and it was all about Americans and what they believe about life after death. And what they found was over 50 million American adults are uncertain about their eternal fate. Over 50 million American adults do not know what's going to happen to them after they die. Over 50 million don't know if they'll end up in hell or heaven or if they'll end up anywhere after death. They also found that 15% of people who believe that they'll end up in heaven think that they'll get there because, simply put, they're a good person. And 6% of people who believe they'll end up in heaven believe they'll get there because they don't think God could send people to hell. And then among born-again Christians, 50% of them believe that salvation can be earned by good works. And many also believe that there are many ways and options to attaining access into heaven. So I found this study to be really interesting, really eye-opening, but also very sad because it reminded me that there are so many people, not only in the US, but in America, who do not know where they're going to end up. And I can guarantee that we know more than one of those people. We probably come in contact with those people daily. It made me sad also because there are Christians even who do not know biblical truth, which is keeping them from really getting to know Jesus. And then that made me really sad because it means there are so many people in the world who do not know Jesus, the life giver. And for all of us who do know Jesus, we know what a tragedy that is, right? So it was interesting, but it was also very sad. Um, today we're going to be reading 1 John 3, and in 1 John, John is addressing the same kind of issues and questions among his community. There were people in his community who were questioning assurance before God, they were questioning who Jesus even was, and so he was dealing with the same types of things that we deal with today. So in 1 John, um, he was a part of a community called the Johannine community, and this community had had a split, a division, because some of the people in it did not believe that Jesus was both God and human. Some of those people also did not believe that Jesus was the Messiah. So there was a lot of pushback on what he was teaching. There was a lot of pushback on the biblical truth that he was preaching. And so there was a split, there was rival, and there was a lot of heartache and hurt because of this. People left that community. And so um, John wanted to get back to the basics of Christianity in 1 John. And so you can see in all of his letters, he's writing to this community to remind them about the basics of one, who they are, and what that means for them. So the first question we need to address because this is gonna be a good reminder to us too, is who are we? Why are we here? And what does it mean to be a Christian, especially in the world today? So we're gonna to start with 1 John 3, 
1 through 3 if you want to open your Bibles or get your Bible apps up. And it says, See what great love the Father has given us, that we should be called God's children. And we are. The reason the world does not know us is that it didn't know him. Dear friends, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet been revealed. We know that when he appears, we will be like him because we will see him as he is. And everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself just as he is pure. So 1 John 3 begins as an invitation and a reminder to participate in this great love. And it's this great love from Jesus that sets the stage for everything else. It says, see what great love the Father has lavished on us, that we should be called his children. And I wanted to look up other meanings for lavished. I wanted to look up some synonyms, so I went to thesaurus.com, which is my favorite website, because I like to find out different meanings. It kind of opens up a whole new world to that word and what it means. So I looked up lavished, and some of the words that popped out to me were heaped. So see what great love the Father has heaped on us, has poured out on us. And my favorite one, and this may sound weird at first, but just track with me, is wastefully given. To be wasteful with. See what great love the Father has been wasteful with. Now that sounds weird, but think about it. When you waste something, you don't think about how much you're going to give. You don't put a stop on it. You just do it. And God never stops giving us his love. His love is poured out on us, and he is wasteful with his love towards us in the best way possible. He never stops. He never puts a limit on it. And it's the same type of idea as him being reckless with his love, that song, Reckless Love of God. That's the same type of idea. So God is reckless with his love for us. He's heaped his love on us, and now we get to be children of God. And this isn't just a title that he's given us, but we actually are children of God because the life of God lives inside of us. And we can't do anything to earn this love. We can't do anything to keep it. By his grace, he continues to give it to us over and over and over again. Um, John employs family metaphors to depict spiritual relationships and ethical obligations. And during the time that this was written, loyalty to family was the most important thing. So he's starting out with a family picture, an idea of us being children of God, family, to say, this is who you are, but also this is what's expected of you. And so he kind of starts off with that. So I started to think about expectations within a family. Um, all of us come from families, and I'm sure that in each family there's different sets of expectations. And so I was thinking about my own family growing up, my family with me, Kyle and Violet now, and then I was thinking about families that we may all be familiar with. And <laughs> one of the first families that I thought of were the Kardashians. How many of you know the Kardashians? <laughs> All right, well, for those who don't know the Kardashians, count yourself lucky. No, I'm just kidding. Um, they're a Hollywood family, um, and there's, they're all, there's a lot of girls in this family. And in my, in my mind, they're famous 
because they're famous. Like, there's not, they're not really famous for anything <laughs> that I'm aware of. Um, but they have their own show. It's called Keeping Up With Our Kardashians. Um, and they, they just follow their life. The cameras follow their life. They say a lot of silly things, um, and they're kind of just famous for it, okay? Um, now, now, now there are some reasons that they're famous. One of them is a model. One of them has a makeup line and stuff. But to start out, I kind of think they were just famous because they were interesting to watch on TV. Um, and so I started watching this show about the youngest one. Her name is Kylie, and she has a sh her own show now. And it's probably Keeping Up With Kylie or something like that. Um, and I watched the first couple episodes of it. And one of the major themes that she spoke herself throughout each episode was that she wasn't happy with her life. That she um, was mainly famous because her family was famous. She grew up in the spotlight. It wasn't something she asked for. It wasn't something that she really desired. Um, but because her family was famous, she was kind of just pushed into it. And so that, that was kind of sad because... Basically, what she was saying was an expectation, whether it was said out loud or not, to be a Kardashian was, it kind of just came with fame. You were expected to kind of be like her, like her older sisters. And that was one of the things she said was, I'm not my older sisters, but I kind of have to act like them. So that was one of the first family expectations that I thought of. Now, growing up, one of the expectations in my family was that we would be at church and in church every Sunday um, and Wednesday, and then that we would spend time with God. Another one in like my bigger family, like my cousins, Kari, um, my brother, our parents, all of them played music, um, and so all of us cousins were kind of, that was kind of an expectation. I don't think there's any of us among the cousins that don't play music of some sort. Um, and so, think about it. In your own family, what is an expectation that's been set? Maybe it's what school you're expected to go to. Maybe it's um, what kind of food you eat. There's all sorts of things that it could be. But in each family, in each family dynamic and group, there's expectations that are set, whether they're said or not. So John, for this community, was kind of setting those expectations. He started out with the basics, saying, this is who you are. You are a child of God. And from there, he kind of said, now, because you're a child of God, this is what's expected of you. So next, in 1 John 3, 8 through 10, if you want to flip to that, John starts talking about sin. He says, but when people keep on sinning, it shows that they belong to the devil, who has been sinning since the beginning of time. But the Son of God came to destroy the works of the devil. Those who have been born into God's family do not make a practice of sinning because God's life is in them. So they can't keep on sinning because they are children of God. So now we can tell who are the children of God and who are children of the devil. Anyone who does not live righteously and does not love other believers does not belong to God. So he talks about children of God not sinning. So the question there is, is John saying as Christians it's impossible to not sin? Or it's impossible to sin, sorry. Is that what he's saying? Because if that's what he's saying, then I've failed. I've been a Christian a long time and I have sinned since I became a Christian. And I'm sure 
pretty much all of us could say the same thing. So let's hope that's not what he's saying. Um, what he is saying is it is possible to not sin. He's not saying as a Christian that it's impossible to sin. He's saying it's possible to not sin. And this is the whole idea of sanctification through his grace. Because when Christ claimed us as his family through his blood for us on the cross, the very life of God was implanted in the believer. This implies that we are the divine children of God. We are his offspring, and the Holy Spirit of God lives in us the second that we ask Jesus to be the leader of our lives. Um, in other translations, instead of it it's saying the very life of God, it says the seed of God was implanted in us. Um, and so I kind of looked into that. Like seed, a grain or kernel, contains within itself the germ of future plants. I read that and I had no clue what that meant because I'm not a gardener or a farmer. So I watched a YouTube video on it <laughs> and I learned about planting and farming and seeds and what that means when it says the grain or kernel contains within itself the germ of future plants, it means it contains the future of that plant. It's a seed, but it contains what the plant will be. Um, and so I really liked that imagery and wording. It contains within itself the bud of future plants. God's seed within us contains within itself our future new life. Because we have God's seed within us, we can continue growing and budding into all that he has called us to. Now, when I was watching this YouTube video about seeds, um, I learned what is required for their growth, the expectations for what a seed needs in order to grow. Um, and some of them were moisture, sunlight, nutrient-rich soil, and warmth. Without these things, the seed can't grow. Without these seeds, the seed will just stay in the ground, will never bud, and will die, basically. Um, so a seed can be planted into ground. It can be planted in the soil, but if that soil isn't nutrient-rich, if it's not being watered, if it doesn't have warmth and sunlight, it will just remain a seed. In the same way, we as Christians that have the seed of God within us have requirements for our growth. We're required to water that seed and nurture that seed by our love and obeying of God and by our love for others. God's seed within us will only grow into new life if we live our life apart from sin. So John wasn't claiming perfection necessarily, but he was saying that to willfully choose to disobey God was not okay. Once you know the truth, if you continue to disobey God, that sin is going to entangle that seed and suffocate it. It's going to, the seed of God is going to be choked out by darkness in our lives. So yes, there will be times when we stumble. There will be times when we need God's grace. And thankfully he has that and he freely gives it to us. But we have to stop willfully disobeying God because the seed of God, the life of God within us will be choked out if we continue to let sin rule our lives. So John has set the stage. He's told us who we are. He's told us what's expected of us. And next, he kind of tells us how we are to water that seed of God within us. 
So we're going to be looking at 1 John 3, 11 through 18. I'm sorry, 11 through 13. And this next section is all about love. He says, this is the message you have heard from the beginning. We should love one another. We must not be like Cain, who belonged to the evil one and killed his brother. Why did he kill him? Because Cain had been doing what was evil, and his brother had been doing what was righteous. So don't be surprised, dear brothers and sisters, if the world hates you. So this section is all about love, but he started it with hate and murder. Cain murdered his own flesh and blood brother because he let hate entangle his heart. He let jealousy and hate take root in his heart. He was watering the seed of the devil and not the seed of God. This idea of hate towards family was really strong and heavy on John's mind when he wrote this because of what had happened in his community, the division that took place in his community. He had seen the way that hate and jealousy had robbed his community of life. But then he goes to talk about Jesus on the completely opposite end of the spectrum. Jesus was murdered willfully because he loved us. So Cain sacrificed his brother on the altar of hate. Jesus sacrificed himself on the altar of love for us. He was the one who chose to sacrifice himself because he loved us so deeply. And the awesome thing about this is he alone made love a reality for us. Without Jesus, we don't know love. So John goes on to say and challenge his community to not allow bitterness or anger to take hold of their hearts, but he wants them to be known as a community of compassion and love. And the best way to water the seed of life within us is to put love into action. And that's what that whole next section is about. Um, now, I have a question. How many of you have heard of Bob Goff? Hmm, not many. Okay, you need to look up Bob Goff because he's incredible. Um, he has a few books out, and the basis of all of them are about love. He has one called Love Does, and he has one called Everybody Always. And his, the way he writes and the way he looks at life is incredible. So I encourage you all to check those books out. But I want to read a few quotes from him. He says, love is never stationary. In the end, love doesn't just keep thinking about it or keep planning for it. Simply put, love does. Next, another quote is, I learned that faith isn't about knowing all the right stuff or obeying a list of rules. It's something more, something more costly, because it is being present and making a sacrifice. Perhaps that's why Jesus is sometimes called Emmanuel, God with us. I think that's what God had in mind, for Jesus to be present, to just be with us. It's also what he had in mind for us when it comes to other people. We are called to be present and to love deeply. John, in this section of um, 1 John 3, he goes as far to question if God's love is even in a person, if they see someone in need but don't help them. So, now we know who we are, God's children. We know the expectations set for us to not let sin rule our lives, and we know the way to water the seed of life within us is to love 
God and love others. But next, John talks about how we can be sure we're living in that truth, how we can have that assurance before God, how we can know that when we die, we'll be with Jesus for eternity. In 1 John 3, 18 to 22, he says, Dear children, let's not merely say that we love each other. Let us show the truth by our actions. By this, we will know without any doubt that we are of the truth and will assure our heart and quiet our conscience before him. Whenever our hearts convict us in guilt, for God is greater than our heart and he knows all things. Nothing is hidden from him because we are in his hands. Beloved, if our heart does not convict us of guilt, we have confidence, complete assurance and boldness before God. And we receive from him whatever we ask because we carefully and consistently keep his commandments and do the things that are pleasing in his sight, habitually seeking to follow his plan for us. Um, So in verse 19, he says, by this we will know that we are of the truth. But when I was researching this passage, I wasn't sure what the by this referred to. And when I was looking at commentaries, um, it said the by this it could either be pointing backward to the demand of love that we're called to, or it could be pointing forward to God's grace. But really, it's pointing both. It's pointing to both. It's pointing forward and backwards. So we know we belong to the truth because we love indeed, but also because God himself assures us that we belong to the truth. Love for God and others and then allowing God to love us and letting us just sink in his ocean of grace. You can't have one without the other. So here's the thing. If we are loving others out of the abundance that we have been loved, then we can rest assured because we know we are in the center of God's beautiful will, which means we are obediently following him. The other part of this, God's grace, is so big. Have you ever heard the song, How He Loves? We did that today. If grace is an ocean, we're all sinking. We will fail. Our hearts will probably condemn us. We'll have anxious times where we don't know if we're doing what's right. But if you know, truly know the Jesus that died for you, and you truly know the Jesus that called you into his family and claims you as his child, then you'll know that he is full of grace and that you can rest in that. He's not a finger-pointing God. He doesn't point at you and say, I saw you do this, I saw you do this. He is full of grace. A quote I found from one of the commentaries said, we find assurance and peace in being thoroughly known by God. Yet it's ironic that for many, the thought of standing before God brings anxious thoughts, even dread. But God's examining presence in our lives now flows from his grace. God is for us. He's not against us and at work to build holiness within us, preparing us daily for the future day. When we embrace this truth, all that dread disappears. Living in obedience to God involves, for John, both believing and loving. Faith without works is dead. 
We have faith in God's grace and his love for us, and because of that, we can love others well. It's not about legalism or moralism. So I wanna share a little bit about myself with you guys. My whole life, I was really, really good at following rules. I was really good um, at the first part of the by this, which was obeying rules, obeying Jesus, and loving others. I would say I was really good at that. Um, and because of that, um, I, I was neglecting, not because of that, but I was neglecting to allow God's grace to encompass all I did. So it became a self-righteous type of attitude and faith. I was trying so hard to obey all of his rules that I was neglecting to allow him to love me and to meet me in grace. Um, and so that obedience without the grace turned into moralism, which turned into legalism, which turned into self-righteousness, which then got me to the point where I thought, I don't, I don't think that Jesus really died on the cross for me, because I, I have it pretty much, I'm pretty good at living this Christian life. When you get to that point, you know you need Jesus' death for you on the cross. You know you're in need of God's grace because you cannot live a Christian life apart from it. And thankfully, he has shown me that. And because I am now learning to be obedient and live in love, but also let his grace meet me where I'm at, it has opened up a whole new world of freedom in Jesus. And because of that, it's opened up a whole new world of prayer for me. My prayer is so much deeper now that I know his grace. And what I do and the way I love is so much deeper because I know his grace. So, I lost my spot here. Um, I was saying, my prayer life has changed because I know his grace. And that's the next section of First um, John three twenty one to 22. He says, Beloved, if our heart does not convict us of guilt, we have confidence, complete assurance and boldness before God. And we receive from him whatever we ask because we carefully and consistency, consistently keep his commandments and do the things that are pleasing in his sight, habitually seeking to follow his plan for us. At first, if you would have asked me about this passage a couple months ago, I wouldn't have fully understood it because it seems like it's saying whatever you ask in prayer, you will get. And I've prayed a lot, and there's been a lot of things that I've asked for that God hasn't answered. But what this is saying is that when we get to the point of being confident before God, when we are living in the center of his will for us, our hearts start to align with his heart our hearts start to just deeply want everything that is in his will. When we start to stand before God in confidence, all we want is what he wants. It's no longer about a self-centered prayer life. It's about an eternal, kingdom-focused prayer life. And because of that, we are praying in line with his will, and he will answer those prayers. Prayers such as, God, help me, to sacrifice myself daily. Provide for me what I need to better love others and put love into action. He'll never leave us without his Holy Spirit to guide us. He'll provide for us what we need to love others well. 
So, yes, we can ask him for things, and he will answer because our hearts are aligned with his. He is faithful to answer and provide us with everything he needs. Last, verse 23 to 24 says, This is his commandment, that we believe with personal faith and confident trust in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and that we unselfishly love and seek the best for one another, just as he commanded us. The one who habitually keeps his commandments, obeying his word and following his precepts, abides and remains in him and he in him. By this, we know and have the proof that he really abides in us by the spirit whom he has given us as a gift. So, back to the very start. We are God's children. We can put our faith in our Father, Jesus Christ. We can love others because we have been loved. We can obey him and love others because we have the Holy Spirit, the life of God, the seed of God in us. So I want you to remember the very start of this message, the stats I shared. Over 50 million Americans do not know their eternal fate. We are called, every single one of us knows someone who doesn't know their eternal fate. Every single one of us knows someone who does not know Jesus Christ. We are his children, and we are called to invite others to be his children. Because he's already claimed them as his children, but they have to accept that. So we are called to go out in love, and to love because we've been loved. And to be assured in his presence that we are doing what is right, which is simply loving. We don't have to overthink it. We don't have to pray about the right opportunities. Just go 